Thank you for listening to this podcast by Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by a special guest speaker. Well, we have officially just a few days left in the wonderful year of 2019. And with that comes our stereotypical time of New Year's resolutions. Every year, a whole bunch of us make New Year's resolutions. And every year, a whole bunch of us keep them for, I don't know, an average of what, five days? I think is the average time that we roughly run. I looked up a, a couple statistics this week and found an interesting one out of, of all places, the University of Scranton. I didn't know that they actually conducted studies that were picked up, but this was picked up at ABC, so they apparently made a name for themselves. They looked up for the year of 2020, what was the number one resolution that people made in any given specific state? And I know this list is exhaustive, so here's what I've done. I've taken away every state that has either exercise or saving money And all we're left with are these couple right here. Apparently in Alaska, it's really hard to make friends. I can understand that. There's not that many. Um, People in Delaware don't like their job. Um, I like Ohio. Travel more. Apparently we're not worried about exercising, but we really want to get out of Ohio. And so um, I thought odd Montana wants to travel more. If I lived in Montana, I'm not sure I'd want to travel a whole lot if I got to be in Montana. And in Vermont, apparently, there is a lack of love that needs to be found. And so these are the (laughs) resolutions that are kind of silly, but we make resolutions. One of the weird things to me is why do we actually make resolutions? We're told that around 65 to 70% of people will make a New Year's resolution this year and any given other year. And on average, about 8% of the resolutions that are made end up being kept even for that one single year doesn't even account for a continuation. So you might resolve to exercise. Odds are, out of 100 people, only seven of them will actually make a resolution. Not of 100 people, anywhere from four to five people will actually manage to keep that resolution for the year. So statistically, resolutions just don't work. Why is it that we make New Year's resolutions? Why do we want them so bad? See, I think there's a couple reasons. I think the first is this time of the year we become very reflective. If we look at the way that God designed the world, there's these seasons. There's this natural renewing of the creation. God is always making things new. That's why the leaves fall off, and then in the spring they grow back. Or if you're in Cleveland in July, they grow back. And in September they fall off. Right? So we get this wonderful little tiny bit of time. Right? We, we naturally see this. This is a time when the new year comes. We reflect back. We like to think about what we've done or how we've been in 2019. And we naturally have this kind of inkling towards improvement. We're not quite content. We naturally crave newness. See, we live in a world that wants to tell us that inherently we are really good people, but but if we're honest with ourselves, especially right around now, part of why I think we process through this idea of resolutions is because deep down we know that we could all do better and that we should all do better. It's baked into who we are and the fabric of our being. We want to be new people. We want to match this God-ordained rhythm of newness in his creation. And so we make resolutions. Yet, we don't know that we can keep them. Our passage this morning, if you have a Bible, please grab it, is in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, If you are a guest with us today or if you don't have a Bible Um, There's one in the pew in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that pew Bible that's in front of you is our gift to you. Please take it home and uh, dig in. We want everybody here to have the Word of God, and so don't let that be an excuse that you can say, well, I don't own a Bible. 
Merry Christmas, now you do. That is yours. In Ephesians 1 through 2, Paul has this beautiful passage where he transitions from death to life. This is a two-part story, and Paul does this in almost every epistle of his that you read. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. If you read any of Paul's letters, you'll notice that he has this progression. He always starts with this boot campy type of tearing us down, right? Letting us know what we're really like. And then he starts from scratch, and he, he builds us up as he talks about the things that Christ has done. Um, that's true in every single epistle that he's written. We see that progression. However, we have a beautiful summary of it so that we don't have to read eight chapters today, this morning, in Ephesians 2. And so let us take a look at that passage right now. Um, it's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We'll read it all the way through, and then we'll dissect a little bit. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you. Thank you for advancing that as I forgot to hit the button. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Skipping ahead to the good parts. We were dead. See, immediately when we read this, we have a problem. Because we're reading this, number one, it's in the past tense, so we were dead? Is there anybody in this room that remembers actually being dead? Does anybody remember being born? No, all we know is we're alive. I'm standing here today. I don't recall ever having been dead for any period of time. And so when we read this, it says, you were dead. I immediately have to wonder, well, what is it talking about? How could we be dead? We're all clearly alive. But the passage gives us a pretty good indication. It says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We're going to look at later on and see how Paul redefines some of these terms that we've come to know. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in the ways that you walked, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Our deadness comes in these things. It comes in the fact that we walked in our trespasses and sins. Now, no one here literally takes their trespasses and sins and puts them on the ground and steps on them. What he's talking about, he's living into those things. You are pressing into, in the midst of your life, the trespasses and sins, into the ways of the world, following the course of this world. There is a difference in how the world thinks and how God thinks. And what Paul is saying here is we, we've subscribed, we've bought the lies that the world sells us about how things are supposed to be. 
And we're walking in them. We're not just seeing it and going, okay, that's, that's over there, that's nice. We're, we're immersed in the world and its ways and its thought processes and what it says is right versus what God says it's right. We've made conscious choices, small ones at first and then larger ones as we've gone on and walked ourselves deeper and deeper into the trespasses of sins. And the reason we've done this is because we have followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's talking about Satan. And this this metaphor of air, John Piper has a really good way of explaining why Paul might have used the spirit of the air. And it's simply the fact that it's all around us. Satan is all around us. He's in the midst of all of our decisions and things. Poking and probing and suggesting and spewing lies at us. Everywhere we go, every place we, we visit, every person we encounter, every challenge we face, we have this enemy, this prince of the power of the air, whispering into us, saying, take the easy way out. Do it this way. Has God really said And so we subscribe to that. And when we walk with the enemy long enough, even when we don't realize it, inevitably, we start to live according not to any kind of framework, but it says our passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of the body and mind. We we live according to whimsy. To walk according to the passions of your flesh, really what you're doing is you're just walking according to whatever feels right. Well, this seems right. Right? There's no moral framework. There's no overarching thing over you that says, this is the way that I'm going to order myself regardless of what the circumstances are. You're just kind of walking through and whatever hits, hits. Maybe you thought this way at some point, but it's more convenient to think this way now. Politicians are great at this. But so are we. And so all these things, Paul says, cause us to ultimately walk in death. And then at the very end, he says, who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Two things there. Like the rest of mankind, he's talking about everybody. So there's no exception to this. We are all like this. Every one of us. There's not some good and some bad. Not better or worse. We're all like this. And we're like this by nature. We're not born as these wonderful, good people who then just slowly walk into sin. We're born as sinners who are dead and who have absolutely no hope whatsoever. Apparently we're going to stay dead. (laughs) Will you advance to the next one? (laughs) There we go. But, one of the greatest words in Scripture, but... I just realized what I did there. (laughs) The key word, but we are stuck, but God did something. God made us alive. And this passage is, is rich with a whole bunch of different questions that it answers, but there's three big ones. The first question is, why would God make us alive? Why did he do it? He didn't have to. God could have created us, and when mankind rebelled in sin, said, oh, well, there it is. I said, punishment is death. You are now dead. Enjoy death. I will see you all later. I'll go try again somewhere else. He could have, but he didn't. Why not? Because he was rich in mercy. 
Guys, we serve a God who is rich in mercy. That's his default. God's default is to be merciful to the people that he's made because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead. Right? As Romans tells us, even while we were still sinners, Christ loved us and died for us. Because of his rich mercy. That is the why. Why did he do it? Because of his rich mercy. How did he do it? And this is important. He made us alive, and here's the key, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Paul loves that phrase, by grace you have been saved. You're going to see that all throughout his writing, and every once in a while he just can't help but throw it in there. It's almost like the amen in a church where people would say amen, right? Presbyterians, we're not that great at that, but, right? He's like, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. Right? He just can't help but exclaim it. And then raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you notice a pattern here? Everything that God gives us that he's done, he's done it in tandem with Christ. We do these things together with Christ. The one thing he doesn't mention is that we also share in the death of Christ. Every one of us someday will bodily die, as Jesus did. But the promise of God is that we follow the example that Christ set for us when he took our sin upon himself, so that just as he bodily died, he also rose. And so we will also be made alive. As he rose into heaven, we also, with him, through him, will be raised up into heaven. And with him we will be seated. We're told that we're seated with Christ on the throne, that we are exalted into this wonderful, special place that God has made for just us. But all those things happen only through Christ. We don't just get raised because God goes raised. It's through the power of Jesus who died on the cross to take our sins so that we can follow in his footsteps. And that is the only way that we follow in his footsteps. And then here's the last one. What did he do it for? His motivation was his mercy and his love, but what's the point? Why go through all this trouble? And here's the key, and we oftentimes get this wrong. It says this, for his glory. He did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. The whole reason you have been saved is to display the glory of God. So that the world, the creation, the stuff and the people and all living and and dead things that he has made from the rock to your pets to you would proclaim glory to the one who did all these things. And that's why he says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. There's a little bit of a nerdy language debate in in this verse and I don't want to bore you too much But the word this, in this is not of your own doing, there's debates over what it's referring to. We don't have gender in the English language. Like this is not female, male, neuter, whatever. But in Greek, it's neuter. And so what we don't, the question is, does it refer to the grace that we've been saved through or does it refer to faith? If it refers to faith, what it's saying is that even our faith, our ability to believe is a gift from God. That apart from God being at work in our lives, we can't even come to him. 
And because that this is a neuter word, it actually is referring back to the whole sentence before it. It's talking about, for grace you have been saved through faith. And this whole thing, this grace through faith, your ability to believe in him, and the fact that that belief leads to life, all these things are a gift of God that he has given us so that we can come to him. So that every single bit of our saving, all of our rescue, every part of it, even to the point where we reach out and we cry out and say, Jesus, save me, is all a gift of God. Every bit of it. So that he gets the whole glory. And that's the mistake we make. We think that God saved us just for our own sake, so that we can, can do other things. But there is a result. And the end result of this is at the very end that Paul says, we will walk in good works. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the pattern there. It's not we should walk in good works and then God comes and saves us. It's that God does all this work out of the richness of his mercy. He pulls us in. He draws us to himself. He calls out to you. He says, be mine. Then we respond And he then enables us to do the works that were already set and prepared for us to do. Those works don't have anything to do with the fact that we are saved and made alive. Nothing. They come later. They're a natural outpouring. And that's one of the keys as we look at the things that Paul is trying to teach us in this passage. There's three things that Paul redefines for us. The first of them is death and life. See, when we hear death and life, we think of bodily death and life. Well, we we had some people that we lost over the past few weeks. They've passed away. They were alive, and now they're not. But that's not what he's talking about here. See, Paul defines death as being apart from God and his purposes and plans for us. If you think about it, hell at the end of the day is really God just giving you exactly what you've asked for. You want nothing of him. And he says, okay, you got it. It's the absence of God, of all things good, even of common grace. And so Paul redefines death here. He says, death is really just us removing ourselves completely from anything good that God would have for us. Removed from the purposes for which we were designed to be. Versus life, which means to be plugged in to what God has in store for us. For us to be made alive is for us to say, listen, God made this earth and he made me and he made you and everyone else in it and he made it with an intentional purpose. You were made for a purpose. God didn't just make you because he just wasn't paying attention one day and plop, you showed up. He made you for a reason. We all have our phones in our pockets. They were made for Specific uses for specific purpose. Imagine if that phone all of a sudden had no cell phone connectivity and the screen died. Can it fulfill its purpose? No. It's made for something. We were made for something. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and to walk in the ways that He sets for us. To enjoy this creation that He's given us. To subdue it. To manage it. To make it beautiful. And to have life 
means to have God free us from the bonds of sin so that we can live into what our real purpose is. That's what it means to be made alive. We order ourselves under the things that God has created. The second thing he redefines is what freedom means. This is where we get into a little bit of trouble because the argument goes, if God is even the author of our own faith, if God is the one who causes us to believe, well, where's human freedom in that? We choose or don't choose him, all these kinds of things. And one of the challenges is that we have a bad definition of what freedom actually means. See, for us, when we think freedom, we think freedom is the ability to do whatever we want whenever we want to do it. That's freedom. If I'm entirely free, it's because I can do whatever I want. Right? I'm free in my own house to do what I want in my own house. If I want to lay on the couch and watch football all day, well, then I will do that. But that's not actually what freedom really is. If we believe that we are created beings of the God of the universe, then freedom, rather than doing what we want, is the ability to do what we're made to do. For us to be truly free means that we have the ability to most fully live out our intended purpose. It's anyone's ability to most live the way they were designed to live And guess what? He is the designer. He's the one who set the parameters of how the designed are supposed to work. And so when we follow him, when we submit to him, he causes us to no longer be slaves to sin, but to actually be free. And finally, Paul redefines what good works are. They are no longer things that we do to earn our way. They are no longer things that we do to earn the affection of God But they're a natural result. When God buys us on the cross and he makes us alive and he raises us up and he seats us on the throne with Christ Jesus and he frees us from the bondage of sin and from the lies that the enemy spews and we connect to him as he says, he is the vine, we are the branches. Ultimately, what comes as a result is the good works. Good works are just these things that if we were truly free, 100%, we'd be doing all the time. It's just a natural result. It's like gravity. If I have a ball and I drop it and there's nothing in the way, it'll just fall. That's the work. It doesn't have to fall for me to want to drop it or love it. (laughs) It It's a natural result. And so Paul completely redefines the way that the Christian life actually is supposed to work. So friends, this year, instead of mundane resolutions, and it's okay to have the goals to exercise, to be healthier. There's nothing wrong with that. But instead of these resolutions that you have such a low statistical chance of keeping, resolve to be alive. Resolve to submit yourself to the one true God who can raise you up and allow you to live out your fullest potential. Everything else is not worth your time. And I'll tell you, God has a heck of a better success rate than 8%. He does. It's common sense, guys. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for the work that you've done. We praise you that because of your rich mercy and your great love, each and every one of us this morning can come to you and can proclaim your truth through your word. We thank you for this space for this church family that we can worship together in unison.
Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us on the cross. Be with each and every one of us as we go out. And Father, we pray that we would be your hands and feet to proclaim that truth to all that we encounter. Amen.